This week at Hope Point. When we look at the fact that Jesus calls us to suffer as he suffered, it's a mystery many times in life. Jesus, why are you asking this of me? Why did I lose my job? Why did my marriage fall apart when I tried? Why did my child die when I believed and served you? Why is my body racked with disease even though we know that God has called us to follow a Christ who suffered? When it's our turn to suffer, it's a mystery. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. When you come to the 10th chapter of Revelation, you really get the feel that you've come to a pregame speech, a coach meeting with his players either at halftime or in the middle of the game. You know, when we watch exciting sports events, we often see players excelling in excellent uh, performance on the field and effort, but so often we don't really know what the coach said to them before the game started and preparing them for the game, what they could expect from their opponent, what he expected from them and from who they're playing for and what they're playing for. You come to Revelation chapter 10 and it feels like Jesus Christ is meeting with his quarterback, John, telling him what he can expect and what the church can expect. And that is that suffering is gonna come, rejection of the message is gonna come. What does Jesus expect in that? For the church to be faithful, for the church to keep speaking. And who are they playing for? They're playing for the risen king of the universe who reigns over all heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. This is how Revelation 10 starts. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. There's been a lot of speculation through the years exactly who this angel, who this mighty angel is. I want to argue for a few minutes that I think this mighty angel is none other than Jesus Christ. You say, why would you say an angel is Jesus? Well, a lot of times in the Old Testament, when Jesus Christ would make an appearance, remember when he came to be a baby at Bethlehem, that's not the first time he showed up on earth. Whenever he showed up in the Old Testament, it was called a Christophany, an appearance of God, they simply referred to him as the angel of the Lord. Nobody knew that who Jesus was in the Old Testament. They called him the angel of the Lord. And you can see the many references in the Bible that the angel of the Lord is Christ. And so maybe John, who loves the Old Testament, was just a little tongue-in-cheek of saying the angel of the Lord appeared to me in Revelation chapter 10. I think the description of the angel merits him being worthy of being considered to be Christ. This one in Revelation 10 is robed in a cloud. The Bible says when Jesus Christ comes back for his church, he's coming through the clouds. Revelation 1 in John chapter 4, or Revelation 14, the Bible says, I saw the Son of Man seated on a cloud. When God appeared to his people on the top of Mount Sinai, the Bible says he came in a, in a cloud. The Bible says also there was a rainbow of his, above his head when we met God saw the picture of God in heaven in Revelation 4. The Bible says there was a beautiful rainbow, dazzling colors above the, the throne of God. 
Here this angel has said his face is like the sun. Also a description of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. The Bible says the face of Christ shone just like the midday sun. And then his his legs were like fiery pillars. Again, when Jesus is described in Revelation 1, the Bible says he looks like someone whose legs just came out of an oven and they're bronze from fire. This is surely a description of of Jesus Christ. Also, Revelation chapter 10 verse 2 tells me this is probably more than an angel because he's so large that one foot is on the ocean and one foot is on the land showing his sovereign rulership over all things. There was a battle in the Old Testament where several kings were defeated and Joshua told his generals, place your feet, men, on the necks of the enemies that you have defeated, showing your sovereignty over the land. I think that's a description of Christ's sovereignty over all things, how he's standing. Some of you say, well, pastor, what if you're wrong? This is just an angel. And you say, listen, there's going to be many times in the book of Revelation, I'm sure I'm wrong. But this is a time where I would say, wow, I would love to be wrong here because if this is just a description of an angel, I cannot wait to see what Jesus Christ looks like if he's so much greater than that. There's another reason I think this angel actually is the Lord Jesus. Revelation 10 says he was holding, verse 2, a little scroll in his hand. Remember the first time that we saw Jesus next to the throne of God in Revelation chapter 5. The Bible says that God handed Christ a scroll. And in that scroll contained how the world would end, how evil would be judged, and how the saints and the church would be rewarded. And it's interesting, when Jesus received that scroll in Revelation chapter 5, there were millions of angels that were gathered around the throne of God, but none of them was worthy to open the scroll. I think that's probably true here. Nobody but Jesus is worthy to receive that scroll from God. You say, why is it called a little scroll? Well, it's really almost the same word as the big scroll used in Revelation 5, Both come from the Greek word biblios, which means a book. And I think maybe here is a little scroll, a little biblios, because eventually in this chapter, it will be handed to John, who's preaching to us today in Revelation chapter 10. And maybe he's not big enough to hold the entire scroll that Jesus held in Revelation chapter 5. So now you're asking, what does all of this matter? Who this is in Revelation chapter 10? And I think it matters is because of your confidence. Because if this angel actually in Revelation 10 is actually the Lord God himself, then you need to understand that the mighty God of the Old Testament who appeared in fire and cloud on Mount Sinai and traveled with Israel for 40 years in the wilderness and gave them victory over all the enemies, that same God is coming to you in Revelation chapter 10 to comfort you in the midst of your suffering. I think it matters who it is because it is a reminder that God himself comes to you to encourage you to stay faithful in the work. I want you to pause for a moment and think about, is this Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 10? Just think about Jesus coming through the clouds, maybe today, to come rescue us. A rainbow over his head, filled with colors we've never seen in heaven. And his face is brighter than the sun, and his legs are 
like fiery pillars. And with one foot, he's standing in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. And with the other foot, he's standing on North America. This is the Jesus who's coming back for you. I think it matters who you see in Revelation because one of the reasons that we struggle to believe and struggle to be faithful in this world is because we need a bigger Christ. We need a bigger picture of Christ. The world is so intimidating, makes us feel like our Christ is small. Here is a big Christ. You need a big Christ. Not just a big Christ, but in Revelation chapter 10, a loud Christ. Revelation 10 verse 3, this angel of Christ gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. I told you before, when you're reading the book of Revelation, it's a loud book. Loud noises, loud voices. And here we see the loudness comes from the roar of a lion, which again is the reason I think this is Jesus. When we first met Jesus in Revelation 5, the Bible said he was the lion of Judah. And here when Jesus roars, creation responds with rumbling with seven thunders. It's interesting, these seven thunders could be understood. John knew exactly what the thunder said. They had a message in them like the rest of the mysteries of Revelation. The thunder spoke, and right when John was about to write it down, Jesus said, do not write what you have learned from listening to the voice of the thunders. I find that very interesting because remember how the book of Revelation began? The very purpose was to explain to us how history would end. Revelation 1.1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must take place. And now... John is told, don't write down what you have learned. Why does he do that? I think there's a couple, maybe a couple guesses, and these are just guesses. Number one, the reason why we don't know what the thunder said is because there are going to be many things between now and the end of history and many things in the book of Revelation that God is choosing to not make clear to us, and we'll wait to find those things out. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. I have hung my hope on this verse many times in life because I don't understand many things about God. I don't understand the origin of evil. I don't understand how God is able to tolerate the existence of evil for all of the years when he could so easily Squash it now. How he is able to make such good purposes come out of such bad things. I don't understand how God commands everybody in the world to have faith in Christ. And yet the Bible says God is the one who gives faith and he holds people responsible for not believing. There are many things about the book of Revelation and the nation of Israel I don't understand How involved Israel will be at the end of times, I don't know. And then there are many things I don't understand about the the subject of time. For believers who've already died, have they stood before the Lord and received their final judgment or reward? 
Or is this a coming thing? I don't understand how time works in heaven. But here's what I do understand. The things that are so clear in the Bible about how to have a relationship with God, what he wants from our hearts and our lives, or what he wants us to do on earth are so unmistakably clear. The things I don't understand, the thunders that I don't know what they said, do not bother me in the slightest. But get used to the fact there are many things in life that we'll not understand. There's a second reason that maybe God was not permitted to write down what the thunders spoke is maybe these are the final thunders that are going to speak before the end of time. Remember what I told you how the book of Revelation is set out. The end of times is described three different times. There are seven seals. At the end of the seals, the world is over. There are seven trumpets. At the end of the seventh trumpet, the the world is over. Then there are seven bowls. At the end of the bowls, the world is over. So maybe here we just have seven thunders, which are another set of sevens reminding us that the world is over and there's no more time for the world to repent. God is going to come to a place in the world where there's no more time and he's going to stop warning the world to turn and repent. There's going to come a time where there's no opportunity to turn back to God. There will be a time where your ability to reason goes away. There will be a time where you can no longer understand truth. There will be a time where you will no longer be able to choose the way of God because you will no longer desire the way of God. There will be a time when God gives you over to your desires. You'll walk in absolute unawareness of the danger that's around you. You'll have no fear, no dread, even though you're walking into a dark eternity. Surely there's going to be a time when there's no no more time to turn to God. Almost like when the weather forecast says a class five hurricane is coming, do not stay in your house. And you stay in your house and when the waters begin to rise, You say, I wish there was time to get out and there's no time to get out. Maybe John was not permitted to write about the seven thunders is because it was simply a reminder. History has come to a place and will come to a place where there's nothing left but judgment. I think the rest of the text shows that. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and all that's in them, the earth and all that's in them, and the sea and all that's in the sea, and said, there will be no more delay. So here in this passage, we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, raising his hand, swearing an oath to God, everything that's in the scroll, all the judgment that is destined to come on the world, all the reward that's coming to the church, Jesus says, I swear, O Father, I will carry all of it out and there will be no more delay. There's no more more time. We see this again in verse seven. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servant, the prophets. Again, we're talking about the seventh trumpet and the end of time. There is no more time there's no, no more opportunity to repent. It's interesting how the end of time here is described 
as the mystery of God is going to be over. No more mystery. The mystery of God that was announced to the prophets, what does he mean by that? The mystery that was announced to the prophets. Well, in the Old Testament, all of the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, all of them were given a vision of a, of a time in the future when God would send a king from earth to heaven who would rule over all of history. That's clear. You can read any of the prophets and understand a king is coming. But the mystery that almost no one in the Old Testament understood is that before this king came and conquered evil, this king would be conquered by death. Evil would conquer this king. The powers of this world would put him to death. That's the mystery that the prophets did not understand. They all strained their necks forward, looking, looking with hope to this king, but the mystery was that this king would die on a cross. They did not know the king had to die on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of everybody in this room. And so the Bible refers to that as, as a mystery. And here we're told in Revelation, there's going to come a time when the mystery of God will no longer be a mystery. You understand the mystery of God somewhat. You're much more comfortable with it than they were in the Old Testament. Because if I tell you today that our sin was so great that there was no sacrifice made in the Old Testament, no slaughtering of an animal that would cover you. God himself had to send the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. That was a mystery to the people of the Old Testament, but it's not a mystery to you, is it? You've heard it since you were a child. Jesus died on the cross. Now, it, it always shocks us that God would so love the world that he would do that, but it's not a mystery. We understand the way of salvation is belief in Christ, in his blood, in his resurrection. That's not a mystery. But there is a mystery when it comes to Christ and our own suffering. When we look at the fact that Jesus calls us to suffer as he suffered, it's a mystery many times in life Jesus, why are you asking this of me? Why did I lose my job? Why did my marriage fall apart when I tried? Why did my child die when I believed and served you? Why is my body racked with disease? Why will I not live to be and see old age? Even though we know that God has called us to follow a Christ who suffered, when it's our turn to suffer, it's a mystery. And the Bible says that one day the mystery will be over and we'll fully understand what God was doing. I think the Apostle Paul alluded to this in Revelation chapter 15, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15. Allow me to read from the the New English Version. But let me to re reveal to you a wonderful secret or mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet, this is the seventh trumpet of Revelation, when the last trumpet is blown, 
For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. This is in the twinkling, in the blinking of an eye. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that can never die before we live in heaven. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Now, this is when the mystery is over. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is related to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. When the mystery of all suffering will be completed when we see Jesus face to face. And because we are longing for the blowing of that seventh trumpet, we're longing for all mystery to be concluded. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 with these words. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not, is not in vain. The trumpet will blow and all mysteries will be solved. So let's return to Revelation chapter 10 and look at what gonna, what's gonna make our mission so difficult that we would want to give up when Paul said, don't give up. All of that is answered in Revelation chapter 10. So I went to the angel and I asked him, give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my, my stomach turned sour and then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, na nations, languages, and kings. So even though this is an unusual vision, it's not hard to know what's happening in the vision. Jesus Christ hands the scroll, the little scroll to John, and he eats it. And when he eats it, it is delicious and it is sweet but when it enters into all the way down to his stomach, it causes a horrible problem with digestion because it's so sour and so bitter. And so what we wanna ask the question today is, what in the world could make the sweet word of God ever be bitter or sour? We could guess, but we don't have to guess because God tells us in the book of Ezekiel, because he's the first prophet that was ever commanded to eat the Bible. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. This is a scroll of judgment. This is a scroll of sorrow over the world's destruction. And it's so intense, the writing is on both sides of the scroll. So when you go to Revelation 10, you understand that the word of God contains a message that is sweet and a message that is bitter. We love the sweet parts of scripture. I could pick so many portions in the New Testament that are sweet and you enjoy hearing them. Look at Romans 8 alone. Three promises that are so sweet. There is no condemnation, no judgment, no guilty verdict for anybody in this room who belongs to Christ. That's sweet. 
Look at the second promise of Romans 8. God calls us all things to work together for those, for good, for those who love him. That's sweet. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the Bible is full of sweet promises. The Garden of Eden was beautiful. Heaven is filled with the same beauty as the garden, but even better. And so we love to preach the promises of God, the comforts of God, but the true call for any prophet is to preach both the sweet parts and the parts that are, are bitter. If you're a faithful teacher of God's word, you must teach both parts, parts that comfort and parts that threaten No one wants to hear the, the parts where they're living in sin, that God is demanding that they turn from sin. The message was so intimidating that God was calling Ezekiel to preach the sweet parts and the sour parts, that God had to coach him up. He got the same coaching that John received in Revelation because he was assigned to preach both of these. He said, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. This is why it's bitter to preach the word of God. He's explaining it right now, why it's hard to preach the word of God. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Son of man, do not be terrified of them or their words. Do not be afraid of what they say. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or whether they fail to listen. This is why it's difficult to preach all of the word of God because some days you preach that which is comforting and those some days you preach that which is threatening. It's amazing that Ezekiel was assigned to preach to a rebellious church a rebellious house of God. But Revelation, John was commanded to preach both to God's people and to the pagan world. This is the message to John. I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, many nations, many languages, and many kings. There are two reasons that people live in sin. They're either in rebellion they know they're doing wrong or they're living in delusion. They're blind and no longer know what is right and wrong. And God told John, you're to go preach to all the world and to all the church, whether people are living in rebellion or delusion, you're to preach the truth of, of the Bible. And we saw in the past two weeks that not many are gonna listen. Not many will repent. Not many will turn. And yet the faithful prophet of God in, in Revelation chapter 10 is commanded to keep preaching whether you're preaching the sweet news of the gospel or the hard news of, of judgment. You know, it's amazing when you preach the hard news of judgment, the judgment of God, the first thing that you hear back in return from the culture is you're being judgmental. That message is so strong from the world now that it has intimidated the church, the fact that we no longer want to be called judgmental. 
And I want to tell you, just imagine how ludicrous it would have been in the days of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel for culture to look at those three prophets and say, you're being judgmental. We knew they were just men of God being faithful. And yet in our generation, we're allowing the church, to, the world to tell us and to make us feel as if we're being judgmental, even we're being faithful to talk about the coming judgment of God. You'll never be faithful to God if your goal in life is for everyone to like you. How many believers choose the nature of their conversations based on the response they're going to get because they want to be liked? Can you imagine when Ezekiel stood before his culture and preached the message that God told him to preach? How many people from his culture said, oh my goodness, Ezekiel, thank you, thank you, thank you for telling me that. Thank you for telling me I'm living in sin. Thank you for telling me the judgment of God is coming. But so many preachers and church leaders and church members go through the world planning their words so that everyone will like them. Being liked is not the goal, for not everyone will like you. The goal is to tell the whole world all that God has said. Speaking faithfully is the goal. Pleasing God is the goal. Jesus Christ was perfect. Now think about this. We don't think about this enough. Jesus Christ was perfect. That means everything he did and everything he said was perfect, and yet he ended up on a cross. And if you would have surveyed the people in Jerusalem the day that Jesus died, you would not have heard the people say, I never heard anything, anybody say anything bad about Jesus. The whole city was saying bad things about Jesus. If you are faithful to God, there's going to be a lot of people that will call you too narrow. You turn people off. You can never be a faithful parent in life if your goal in life is for your children to like you. You can't disciple them. You can't evangelize them. You can't mentor them if all you want is for them to like you. Said sometimes the message you, you speak to the world will be sweet. Sometimes the message you speak will be, will be sour. It's hard to share hard news. You can imagine a doctor. He brings somebody in his office. What a wonderful privilege it is the day they come in. And he says, we got the biopsy back and there's no cancer. Go, I'll see you later. Then the next person comes in and says, I got the biopsy back at stage four. This disease will take your life. There's nothing we can do. Sharing hard news is hard. And it doesn't cause a doctor to not share it simply because it's hard news. I guess the difference in that example is very seldom do you see a patient getting angry at the doctor. But our culture gets angry at Christians for sharing hard news to the point that Christians are willing to give a false diagnosis so the world will like them. Let me tell you something. There's not, never a moment for any true, faithful, born-again follower of Jesus 
that enjoys delivering hard news. I don't necessarily like preaching this. I never like delivering hard news. My preaching professor used to say, men, the day that you enjoy preaching a hard message is the day you should resign. We're humbled and we're broken by having to say to someone that is addicted to sin, whose body is filled with desires that are so difficult, those desires have owned that person, and you tell them you have to turn, that Jesus is more worthy than those desires, Jesus is more worthy than that person that you are sinning with. But if we're truly the followers of Christ, if he's the Lord of our life, we will deliver the message, whether it's sweet news or whether it's bitter news. We will say to our culture, no one can save you other than the person of Jesus Christ. You have a conversation. It might be with somebody whose life is filled with good works. It might be a kind Muslim. It might be a, a devout Hindu, it might be your best friend who is Jewish, and your message to them is the only faith that saves, the only foundation of any religion that's true is the, is the foundation that's based on the bloody death, the sinless life, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. We say that to everybody, and anybody who doesn't believe in Christ will will miss heaven. We say to our culture that when God allows sperm and egg to produce life in the womb, at that moment, God owns that life. It's his life, and it's his choice to do what he wants with that life, his purposes for that life, and he alone has the right to end that life. We say to our culture that there are only two genders, male and female, woman and man, and it's the design of God that marriage take place between the uniting of the man and the woman, male and female. And it's God's desire and design for all sexual intimacy to occur within the context of the male-female relationship. And anything outside of that is a perversion of God's design. And we say that over and over again to a culture, even when it's hard. And even when the culture says... I reject that, I reject you. We don't say hard things because we like saying hard things. We say hard things because they're true. And we say true things because we follow a savior who called himself the truth. We follow a savior who so valued truth that he valued truth more than his own life. Jesus could have avoided the nails he could have avoided the thorns. He could have avoided the whip. He could have avoided the cross if he would have just not told all the truth. But he loved his father more than he loved his life. And he made an oath to his father in heaven. I only do that which pleases you. And he told the truth. I want to tell you that right now I'm preaching through the book of Revelation 
We've been in the book of Revelation since, number, uh, since November. For some of you, this might be a long series, and you ask me, when, when will we be done? It has 22 chapters, so I will say <laughs> Revelation 22. Let me tell you why I'm in chapter 10 today, because I was in chapter 9 last week, and why I'll be in chapter 11 next week, because I was in chapter 10 today. 19 years I've been with you preaching through books of the Bible, this chapter followed by that, followed by this verse, followed by that verse. I've never stood before you and said, for the next seven weeks, I'm going to have a theme of of a certain topic in life that I think you need to know. And the reason I don't do that is I think God knows more what you need to hear than my creative themes. And if I was in charge of picking what I would preach today and not being directed by the word of God, I certainly would not have picked Revelation chapter 10. I would pick things that you like and maybe things that would cause you to like me. But I think God knows better what you need to hear, so we just go to the next chapter. Lisa and I went to the Peace Center two weeks ago to watch the historic uh, accounting of the rise of the greatest singing group ever, The Temptations. All this music that came out of Motown and the brilliant music writing and the brilliant dance moves, and they were brilliant on stage and they were brilliant back in the 50s when the music was first invented, it was the style of singing and dancing. And it was incomprehensible to see the brilliant minds and bodies move like that. And after every song, the people burst into applause at the Peace Center. And I, I was among them. And I would go back tonight and I see it, I want to see it again. It's happy music. But somehow we have misunderstood the, the work of the church that somehow a man is supposed to stand on stage and become somewhat as a celebrity and say things that cause the world to break out into applause. When the job of the man on stage is to say, repent and turn to Christ or you will not spend eternity in heaven. No applause other than from God. It's not a performer on stage. It's just a prophet, sometimes preaching the sweet things of the gospel, sometimes assigned to preach the threatening words of judgment. Now, if we're all going to admit it, we say, well, I can't do this. How do we do this? I can't do that. I can't either. My wife was gone this weekend, came home last night, said, how's your message? I said, I think it's about done. She said, how you feel about it? I said, pretty depressed. <laughs> so I go back to Ezekiel. Let God tell me what God told him about preaching to the 21st century culture. Ezekiel 3, but the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate, but I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. 
Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. Every true witness for Christ needs to have a soft heart and a hard head. Twice in this passage, God said, I will make you to have a hard head. I will make your mind to be more disciplined and more devoted than the world is devoted toward its sin. Come near to me, Richard. Come near to me, church. Listen to my word. Sing my word. Read my word. And I will fill you with power by my spirit that I will make you more determined to speak and live out truth than the culture is determined to live out deception. The only reason the church exists for 21 centuries is that God has not let the church be abandoned. He's raised up people for 21 centuries that they are more determined to preach truth than the world is to stop truth from being preached. As determined as the culture is to depart from God, Christians must be more determined to speak for God. Why are we so devoted to truth? Because it's the only thing that saves somebody. The truth will set you free. Nothing else will set you free. God wants the world to hear truth more than a million times for the world to have anything else. God loves truth more than he loves anything else because it is truth alone that saves. And if we love him and we love our culture, We'll be devoted to truth as Christ was devoted to truth no matter what happens because Jesus is worthy. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.